0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Uh, third and final week of our Christmas series that we are in called He Shall Be Called. We're kind of looking at some of the names of given to uh, Jesus, and it's tempting during this season, isn't it? to reflect back on something that happened 2,000 years ago. And, And I think there can be the tendency within the church world of saying, something cool happened a long time ago, and once or twice a year we pause and we think about what happened then. But the whole beautiful thing about Advent is that it recognizes both the arrival of Jesus in the world in the physical sense but it is the time that we celebrate the ongoing advent or arrival. Advent is the Latin word meaning coming or arrival. It's also the time that we celebrate the ongoing arrival of Christ in the world today because we believe that it's not just something that happened 2000 years ago that has significance to us, but it is how it applies to us Today and how we live out our lives. And in this series, we're kind of talking about the importance of names. We we talked about that a little bit in the first week, and last week Matt talked about the Prince of Peace. Names are important, we've decided, you know, and, and in the Hebrew context, there was a lot of importance given to names that were assigned to people. Some names were given prophetically as to say this is what this person would become. Some names were given characteristically, as in this person had, you know, for example, in Jacob and Esau. You know, Esau meant red or ruddy, you know, the kind of the red hair and the scruffy beard. So some names were assigned based on characteristics. Well, the names that were given to Jesus, or the names that we use to apply to Jesus, help reveal aspects of his character and how we can connect with God. And this passage that we're going to start out with first is Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. We've read this each week. It's kind of the idea behind the series. And it says this for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. This is a prophecy. So this was written well before Jesus was on the scene. And this was looking forward to in hope and anticipation of something that was to come. And for the people of Israel, this was a hopeful passage because it meant that something would be better than what they had right now. They were looking forward to the advent, the arrival of a Messiah, a Deliverer. And so these names were names that were associated with what this Messiah, this Deliverer would be. And this morning, we want to talk about specifically this, this, one of these last names and their Everlasting Father. Father. Everlasting Father. Now, if you grew up within the the church world, you probably have heard of like this theological concept of a trinity, which is this understanding of God being triune or three parts and yet one. And we would say that it would be God is represented to us as the Father. And then the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, when he came in the physical form, he was known as the Son of God. There was passages where when he was baptized, the heavens opened up and, and God spoke and said, this is my beloved Son. And so that was the Father speaking the Son. So it may be a little bit confusing to say, well, how would, how would Jesus be the Father or the Everlasting Father? And we want to look a little bit into the uh, the idea behind this name, because you see in the Hebrew construction of the phrase, Father is the primary noun in every Everlasting or eternal is the term that describes that. So probably a better way of of saying that would be maybe father of eternity or father from eternity. It's God existing outside of space and time and being the start of something. So you may have heard of like a founding father, so within our country and within our historical context, if, if you remember from your school days there, we talk about the, the founding fathers and, and specifically for the United States of America, we have one that more often than not kind of rises to the top as, as to in a political spectrum, the founding father of our country. Who would you say that would be in the United States? George Washington, right. So George Washington would be like the founding father. He would be the dad of this democracy. He was the one that we attribute a lot of uh, emphasis to. Now within all the different fields and disciplines and activities, there are people that are sometimes called founding fathers or fathers of certain things. So for example, within the basketball world, you know, we have some basketball fans in here. A lot of emphasis is given to teams and how well they do and basketball has been around for a while more often than not we don't dive deep enough into the history of that and I'd be surprised if somebody knew this but you can try your best does anybody know or who would you say the founding father of basketball is say that I'm impressed. Look at that. That's right. Dr. James Naismith is the founding father. We're going to have to talk afterwards about how you knew that. That's impressive right there. So this is a guy who somewhere along the way decided that he was going to invent this new game. And think about this, if you will. So James Naismith had this idea for a game. Now, can you imagine if he would have been able to look into the future and to describe what it was like? And if you were to tell people, like, this game is going to be the new big thing. There's going to be teams that are going to come together, but not just like teams like in a town, like all these different states are going to form leagues and and leagues are going to come together and they're going to play. And fans, thousands, tens of thousands of fans are going to pack out these big field houses and they're going to spend hundreds of dollars for jerseys. And it's going to be a big, big thing. And and somebody would be like, "No, no, no, this is just, you've taken a ball and you have a basket and you throw it in there. That's, and you've like somewhat, unoriginally called it basketball, and this is going to really take off and be a big thing, but he knew about it, and he's like, this is something cool, something that's going to happen. He'd be the founding father of basketball. Now, another one is we have some computer programmers in here or some people that are up maybe on their computer history. Anybody know the founding father of computers or the founding father of computing? IBM? IBM? No, not IBM. a little bit before IBM, As a matter of fact, this individual would have predated any of the modern forms of computing that we would know today. His name is Charles Babbage, Charles Babbage. Now, when he founded computing or the idea or the concept of computing, he didn't even have in mind what would happen today. I mean, it wasn't like Mac or PC or iPads or phones. I mean, like what has happened now has gone far beyond what... He originally dreamt up, but he created the foundation for this new field of computing and gave us the beginning of a whole brand new field. Now, speaking of new fields, there are genres of, of writing and uh, of, of uh, literature. And there's one particular genre that I'm a huge fan of, of course, and that's science fiction. Within the science fiction world, does anybody know who would be considered to be the founding father of science fiction? No? Yeah, I'll go with H.G. Wells. Now, I mean, there can be some discussion as to who actually contributed more to this, but like, I mean, H.G. Wells gave us, you know, the Time Machine and War of the Worlds, and, and he was a founding father of what became a whole new genre of literature. And of course, it you know, went past literature because now we have science fiction movies and TV shows, and even for H.G. Wells, if you would have sat him down and say, you have no idea, this new field of conversation, these new stories that you're telling, it's gonna go so much further than just what you're dreaming of. There's gonna be whole networks developed to just this genre. There are going to be fans, rabid, crazy fans who dressed up in cosplay and show up for these big conventions because they're fans of all this type of science fiction and fantasy. But he would be considered like a founding father. He contributed this foundation to a new genre, and then everybody since then has kind of built upon that. Now, if we're talking music, there's lots of different types of music out there, but you know, the, the early days, if you go back to the early days of rock and roll, who would you say would be like the founding father of rock and roll? Uh, so Elvis, we get that a lot, right? A lot of people think of Elvis. If you were to go back a little bit before Elvis, and actually someone who is within a lot of music circles considered to be the king, not the king, but the father of rock and roll, would be Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry actually created this foundation of this new form of music. And again, now, since we're talking about, like, you know, artistic style, this is where it gets fun, because everybody can argue about who the actual father, you know, is. And then you can even go further and say, who's the grandfather of? I mean, I was down a whole rabbit trail when I was researching this. But the idea is that there are people within certain fields, within disciplines, that, that, that start something. And then the thing that they start takes on a life of its own, and then other people jump on, and then they contribute to it, and it becomes this whole thing. It takes on a whole new way of seeing things. So, like, going back to the basketball illustration, right? Basketball today looks very, very different from what the original basketball actually was dreamt up to be. Um, Everything starts somewhere, and there is a founder a founding father for that discipline. And then it goes from there. Now, at this point, I have to acknowledge that, yes... There's, it's unfortunate there's, there's this patriarchal wording that is associated with this idea of being a founding father. And it's unfortunate that because of the last couple thousand years of the way that we've uh, had inequality, that there have been many women who have contributed lots of things to different fields that weren't recognized simply because they were a woman. So for the purposes of our discussion here, we're going to just say that founding father is kind of like synonymous for someone who is starting something. And it has nothing to do with their gender. And maybe we could kind of go back and look at this idea of being an everlasting father. And we could actually kind of reinterpret that phrase this way to say that, that Jesus being the founding father, the, the, the everlasting father, could be said he's the great originator. In, in the Hebrew translation, you could probably say the beginning, the start, the source of life. A little bit later on in scriptures talked about how Jesus is both the alpha and the omega, or the A to Z. He is the beginning and the end. But everything starts somewhere. And so this this title, this name that's given to Jesus is a name that's given, not reflective just of his fatherhood in a biological sense, but in the idea of starting something. And it's important to note, too, that all of these names that we choose, any name that we pick for something, is but a small, impermanent, imperfect placeholder for something bigger. To, to illustrate this, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment. Pull up in your head a picture of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have actually been to the Grand Canyon in person? You've seen it in person, all right? Okay. So some of you haven't. How many of you have not been to the Grand Canyon? All right, so imagine for all of you who have not been to the Grand Canyon, this is hard to do, but imagine you've never even seen it before. You know, in our digital age, we we have images of everything, right? But imagine you've never even seen it. Now, for those of you who have been there, how do you describe something like the Grand Canyon to someone who has not been there? Well, in our church, and this is a little bit strange we discovered this morning, that we we have three geologists who are part of this church. I said two this morning, but then somebody else came up and said, oh, I'm a geologist too, and apparently we're attracting geologists here at Inspire. But like those three geologists, Spencer being one of them there, if they were to describe the Grand Canyon, they could use, you know, um, scientific terms of geological terms to describe the types of rock and strata and the formation and all that stuff. And they could probably put us all to sleep describing in very rich detail. And they could be technically correct. But does that, does that describe it accurately? Does that sum up what is the Grand Canyon? Sometimes if we were to describe the Grand Canyon, uh, we would use words that are descriptors not of just the thing that we were seeing but of how we felt. Like it was awe-inspiring. It was majestic. Or it made me feel very small and insignificant. Right? So anything that we try to attribute as a descriptor for something like the Grand Canyon, we can't sum up the whole of the Grand Canyon with a word, or dozens of words, or pages and pages of words. Even the best written books fall far short of describing something that we can see with our eyes, because sometimes there are words that aren't sufficient for the thing that we're seeing. That's why that sometimes when you see a sunset, all you can do is just sit in silence and take it in. So when we're talking about words and names and descriptors here, especially when it comes to what we call the divine, we have to recognize that any words that we choose, any names that we try to latch onto are small facets of something far bigger. That's why Jesus, when he came, he talked a lot in the form of parables, and he would start a lot of his parables by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would tell the story. And a lot of times his stories were visual and pictorial because he was trying to describe something that's hard to describe. And if you were to maybe describe the Grand Canyon, you would maybe do it the same way to someone who hadn't seen it. Well, the the, the Grand Canyon is like, picture if you were to take a shovel and then to just shovel out these like ravines and you're trying to describe it. And of course, you're not describing how the actual Grand Canyon came to being because there was not a giant shovel that dug it out, right? But you're trying to use pictures and images and metaphors to describe something that's hard to put into words. So anytime we use these names of Jesus, these are ways that we can kind of like use as a placeholder to say, Jesus is like, God is like this. So how is God like an everlasting father? How is Jesus like this source, this start, this beginning well, much in the way that many founders started something, Jesus did the same thing. When he came on the scene a couple thousand years ago, the people at the time had very specific hopes and ambitions for who he would become. He didn't live up to many of those things because they were expecting something entirely different. But what he came to do was to start something that could then be passed on. He lived in many, by many regards, a small, seemingly insignificant life. He was born to poor parents who were refugees fleeing from persecution. For the early part of his childhood, they had to flee and live outside of their country of origin. He grew up the home in the home of a working-class tradesman. And when he finally began his teaching, he was one of many messiahs at the time. There were multiple people in the Hebrew context, in the Israeli countryside, that were seen to be potential messiahs, potential deliverers in much the same way that we would look to our political landscape and we would say, oh, there are multiple future presidents, and you would look at them and they would each have their attributes. Within the context that Jesus lived in, there were multiple people that were seen to be potential deliverers for the people of Israel. What set Jesus apart, aside from being the Son of God, was that he came to start something that did not end with him. We said at the beginning of the message, remember, that the whole point is not just that something happened 2,000 years ago, but that something happened that continues to happen today. Jesus, being the great originator, the source, the start, set in motion a movement that you and I are still a part of today. We sit in a building as a collective group of people known as the church. That's part of a larger collective group of people known as the church in our country and worldwide that all say that somebody 2,000 years ago started something in motion that we wanted to be a part of. And we try to live and model our lives after this person. Jesus gave us this way of living. And we call ourselves Christian or Christ-like because we try to follow that way of living. He started something in motion, but the thing that he started went far beyond him. He even told his disciples, the things that I do, you will do, but even greater things. Because he even knew then that the thing that he was doing in this world was far bigger than just simply a Jewish man being nailed to a tree. He was starting... This movement, this catalytic group of people that would change the world and bring about God's kingdom here on earth. Colossians says it this way For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and he holds all things together. He is this underlying thing that connects everything together. But every founder, the thing that makes them such an important part of the story is that the thing that they started did not end with them. If Naismith had created this fun little game where you take a ball and you throw it in a basket, and if it only was something that he did with his friends... We wouldn't be talking about basketball today because it wouldn't have gone anywhere. It would have been a fun game like you make up on a playground. But instead, he took that thing, he began to spread it, people began to innovate upon it, and then it became something far bigger than what he originally dreamed. In much the same way, Jesus came and he recognized that this thing that he was starting in the world would not end with him but it would pass on. As a matter of fact, he saw the importance of the next generation. One of the stories that we're familiar with is Jesus teaching the crowds, and much in the way that we have today, there's a lot of kids around and stuff, and so the kids were coming, and they were being noisy, and they were playing, and the disciples were trying to like shoo them away, saying, hey, you know, the adults are talking here. You go over there and play, and be quiet, and stay out of Jesus' way. He's trying to Do something here. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Matthew 19, 14, he says, no, let the children come to me and don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. He said, this thing that I'm starting, it doesn't stop with me, but it's going to continue. It's going to continue with those who are just like these little children. Wide-eyed and full of wonder, ready to take this thing And innovate upon it and grow it and build it and take it even further than where it was before. That's why we here as a church so value our children and our work that we do with our family ministries because we recognize that if all we do here at Inspire is get together and sing and talk and have a good time, but if we don't invest in this next generation, then very quickly we will find ourselves dead or dying because we have finite lives. The beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that it is something that is invested into us and it's something we get to invest into others. It's this growing process. It's this baton that's passed from us to others. And Jesus said, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, it's like these little children. And speaking of, I think we have some little children that are going to be a part of our service here this morning. We got to witness some of them doing their magic here this morning, and I have to say it's a tough act to follow these kiddos. That's why I went first, because I knew that anything that happened after these kids got on stage, you weren't gonna hear any of it. So we're going to move to this part of our service here where we are going to enjoy some special songs by these adorable little kiddos who have come ready to sing. Guys, are you ready to sing some songs? No. No. (laughs) We got some jokesters up here too. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.